0: Welcome to Brain in Today, we are delighted to be joined by Stephen Kirshner from Fredonia State University in New York, and we're going to be talking about sexual taboos. Stephen, would you like to start with a thought experiment?
1: Imagine that an adult male uh, wants to have sex with a a 12-year-old girl. Imagine that she's a willing participant. A, A very standard, very widely held view that there's something deeply wrong about this, and it's wrong independent of it being criminalized. It's not obvious to me that is in fact wrong. I think this is a mistake. And I think that exploring why it's a mistake will tell us not only things about adult child sex and statutory rape, but also about fundamental principles of morality.
2: So I'm assuming that some people think it's fundamentally wrong because they would disagree with that initial statement, which is there's a 12 year old who's willing. It seems to me like there are clear cases where 12 year olds would be unwilling. But they might argue that there's no cases where a 12-year-old is willing. So they might say that a 12-year-old just can't be willing in that situation. They don't understand what sex is. They don't have the requisite knowledge. They don't understand the consequences. And so they're not really willing to engage in that act because they don't understand what they're willing to engage in.
1: Sure, so there could be two ways someone could structure this objection. They might think that children can't be willing things in general, it's an odd view in that they seem to will things all the time. They, they will participation in kickball. They will showing up, participating in the bar mitzvah lessons, spot mitzvah lessons. So there's all sorts of things that they will. You might think, well, maybe there's something distinct about sex that they can't really understand it. It's not clear to me that what they're not getting at is consent. I suspect what they want to say is, okay, they're willing participants, the voluntary participants. They have some understanding of what's going on, not understanding we do, but some understanding, but they haven't consented perhaps that's so but that's a different claim from there being unwilling there's just lots of activities that children engage in that they don't understand all that well for example when you when you first show up to um participate in judo tournaments or you prepare for your your bat mitzvah i mean you have a rough idea but it's not clear how much you fully understand it
0: yeah it seems to be the case that the view is that there must be a high level of informed consent to engage in sex and people tend to think that there's some threshold at which you are deemed to have it so governments have things like uh, statutory rape laws and those change depending on which district you're in in america for example from a few hundred miles you can cross different states and they have very different rules in some places it might be 16 and some might be 18. so there's some level of arbitrariness about it but what it's been trying to capture is this notion that even if it seems like you're giving consent the consent should be set aside so why do you think that the consent ought not to be set aside?
1: So the problem with the consent aside is if consent were set aside, then it's unclear why we could do anything with children. Why is it that we're able to make them to go to their sister's ballet recital? Or why is it that we have them run cross-country or take certain classes or have certain medical treatment? So if consent were really necessary, it's not clear that we could do anything with children, and especially those things that are not in the child's interest, like go to the the family Thanksgiving ceremony. So that's that's kind of a high bar. We'd rule out most of what we do with children. And with regard to American statutory rape law, I think you're being way too kind. American statutory rape law is just all over the map. And depending on the state, the age of consent is 18, 17, or 16. Some states have Romeo and Juliet laws, which mean if you're in a three-year or four-year window, you're protected. Some don't. It's just all over the map. Some punish it harshly, some punishment not at all. On one estimate, there are 7.5 million instances of statutory rape that occur every year in the U.S., and only 0.2 percent, a tiny fraction, come to the attention of the uh, of, of the law enforcement. So follow the map. And then you have all these bizarro paradoxes. You have cases where two people can both be convicted of statutory rape for having sex with each other. Or a man has sex with his legal wife, takes a video of the, of him having sex with his wife, and he's now convicted of, of federal child um, pornography statutes. So I mean, these, these statutes are just all over the map. They're inconsistent. They're, they're pursued in, at, at a very uneven manner. And they're sentenced in a very uneven manner. So while well, I think you make a good point that American statutory rape law is vague, it's worse than vague. It's just all over the map, inconsistent, arguably
2: i want to suggest some kind of limited limiting case argument to try and get to the 12 year old being in a position where she can't give consent so let's start with a 1 year old so would you agree that having sex with a 1 year old the 1 year old could never give consent and it would always be impermissible would you would you agree with, with that start and then my goal will be to move you up right is to say well if sure. at one, it's not okay, at two, it's not okay, at three, it's not okay, at what point does it become okay? There's some point at which it's not okay, and some point where it does become okay. But just be just below that, it's not okay. And then at that point, I wanna stick there and say, okay, well, that's where our law should 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 stick.
1: Right, so th- there's a couple of things to say here. One is, even if you are looking for a threshold, let's say there's a threshold, I'm, I'm making this number up, but let's say it's at age eight, um, Still, that tells you that some adult child sex is permissible. Second, the notion that it's wrong even with a one-year-old is, is not quite obvious to me. There are reports in some cultures of grandmothers fellating their uh, the baby boys to calm them down when they a colicky. Now, I don't know if this is true, but this, this is sort of widely reported as occurring in, in, in at least one culture. And it's it working, that the grandmothers believe believe this actually works. If this were to be true... And again, I don't know it to be true. If it were to be true, it's hard to see what would be wrong with it. So yeah, I, I guess I think, no, I, I don't think there's a blanket period beyond which this is permissible. If we're interested in willing participation, which is the way I structured it, then yeah, there's a, there's a point below which people aren't willing participants in anything because they don't have intentions or they don't have the sort of mental states that allow for willing participation. But no, I, I don't I don't think it's blanket wrong at any age.
0: So David Benatar wrote this piece on two different views of sexual ethics. And he says the one view is the casual sex view, which is that sex is like any other pleasure. It's like eating chocolate. And therefore, there's nothing wrong with engaging in premarital sex. And the other view is the significance view, which is that in order to for any sex to be moral, it has to be of a certain level of significance, it must be meaningful. It might be that you think that The sufficient level of meaning is that you're married, it might be that you're in a committed relationship, but it is a significant activity in and of itself. And one of the implications, he thinks, of the casual sex view is that it becomes quite hard to explain the wrongness of pedophilia. So, if, as you mentioned, there are all sorts of things that we make children do against their will. So you have to brush your teeth, you have to go to bed by a certain hour, you have to go to school, you have to go to Thanksgiving and endure kisses from your grandma. And we're doing it because we think it's good for you and maybe you'll learn to like it. The argument is, well, if sex is like any other pleasure. And maybe you can even have a situation where there's some level of enjoyment from the from the child in other words at a superficial level there's a physicality and as you say, the the baby is sedated after the activity and you might argue that it's more like a medicalized thing there as opposed to a sex act with the grandmother the, the grandmother is not doing it for her own titillation; it's to coddle the child but there is sexual activity that's going on i suppose so it seems that if those that are uncomfortable with the adult child sex but also want to hold on to a casual sex view because that's the, the general view that they might have about ordinary sex. They've got a tension and maybe they have to pick between these two positions or they've got to live with this difficult contradiction.
1: So, yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, David Benatar's work is always, always worth reading and interesting. That said, I, I, am, I do not agree with the significance view. And I think there's several ways you can see it's false. Here's one way to see it. Imagine you try to pick out what's the wrong maker when someone has casual sex. It doesn't seem that there's a right infringement. Right, a person both people waive their right. If they waive their right uh, against a claim to non interference, it's hard to see what's wrong if there's no right infringement. I may be a little more formal about the argument. If something's wrong, then it seems to wrong someone. To wrong someone infringes a duty that you owe them. A duty you owe someone is just a claim on a Hofeldian taxonomy. A claim is just a right. So if it's wrong, then you infringe on someone's right. There's no right infringement. But even if you thought that there was some other function, like like it's, it's degrading or it's, it's um, exploitative or it's objectifying, it's a little hard to see how any of these are present, that are not present in other activities. There's not really a transaction here, so it's not really exploitative. As far as objectifying, I, I, I fail to see how it's different than a wrestling match or, or a judo match. and you're participating with someone for some activity, what else would, would distinguish the two? So it's hard to see what the wrong maker is. Now, perhaps someone said, okay, well, maybe not. It's not wrong. It's bad. But again, it's the same sort of use parallel arguments. It's hard to see that it sets back the well-being of either individual. So it doesn't seem to be a bad maker. It doesn't seem to disrupt what people deserve. It doesn't, doesn't lessen desert adjusted well-being. It doesn't lessen the objective goods we have in life, love, um, autonomy, virtue, knowledge. So it's hard to see why it's bad, Perhaps someone says, well, okay, it's not wrong, it's not bad, but it's meaningless. Well, I I actually doubt that there is such a feature of of meaningless independent of what's good or or what's implicit or what's good for you. But even if I'm wrong about that, usually what's meaningful is the idea that you take pleasure in those things that are worthy of pleasure. Well, this begs the issue, right? Begs the question, why isn't this worthy of pleasure? So I guess I think it's not wrong, it's not bad. I don't think meaninglessness is a real category, but if it were, it's probably satisfied. So I just just don't think that Benatar's approach is correct.
0: So I just wanna give a couple of further cases that if you commit yourself to a casual sex view, you might have to bite other bullets. Uh, Benatar, by the way, just says, these are the two views and these are the implications for both views. He doesn't actually argue in favor of one or the other. So here's the other problem is that if you have a casual sex view, you might think that rape is wrong, but it's hard to explain the extent of the wrong. So if I can force you to do other things against your will, like go to sports practice, some of the other things I mentioned earlier, we think it's wrong to violate your consent, but what's special about sex? If sex is like any other pleasure, well, is it that bad? So most people take the view that's, that rape is a very bad wrong. And it seems like a casual sex view or the kind of view you're articulating means that it's, maybe it's a mild wrong. The other kinds of cases would be where you don't have the experience of a home. So you can imagine someone who's in a coma, and you have sex with them, and they never find out about it. You might say, well, this is a perfectly moral activity. The one person's having a jolly good time. That might be a particular fetish that they have. They rarely enjoy having sex with people with comas, maybe to the extent they don't want to have sex with anyone else. And the coma patient never finds out. Assume that they're incapable of falling pregnant. There'll be no consequences for them. They're not going to pick up an STD. The ordinary moral intuition is that this person has been raped, and that's something extremely wrong.
1: Right. So two excellent points. So the first issue is how do you account for the wrongness of rape? I, I don't think this is distinct to rape. There's an issue here. How do we in generally, why, why is it worse to commit a murder than a rape? Worse to commit a rape than an aggravated battery? Worse to commit an aggravated ba- battery than a, than a burglary? And worse to commit a burglary than a petty theft? On the best accounts of non-consequentialism, I think there's two ways you can fill it out. One is on the identity of the right that's infringed. Or second is the extent to which the right is infringed. And so whatever mechanism you use there to explain why battery is worse than burglary, I think you can use it here. Either it's a more fundamental right, the right to your body versus the right to your property, or it's set back to a much greater degree. And it's set back in the sense that your, the interference with your either interest or your autonomy is that much greater, and as such, that's why we think that rape is such a, a severe wrong. So I'm not sure that there's anything distinctive in the context of rape that uh, prevents us from explaining the wrongfulness of the activity. As as far as the coma case, there's a real issue as to how rights operate in the context of comas. And the reason for that is the person does not have a setback to an interest or autonomy. And so we say, okay, well, they have their rights anyway, but it's actually a little hard to see why that's the case. It is true that other people who are similarly situated have interest and autonomy, but it's not clear why the comatose person does. But imagine that, Okay, look, they still have they still have rights even though they're no longer justified by interest by by interest or autonomy. Not to agree with that, but but let's say someone thought that. Okay, well, if that were the case, then that would explain why it's wrong to um, have sex with someone in a, in a comatose state. But again, I don't think there's anything distinctive here. Is it wrong to take? a comatose person's property? Is it wrong to paint them with funny mustache or to dress them up in ways that they would find truly offensive? It's not, if you have rights independent of interest or autonomy, then all these things can be wrong and whatever justifies the right at this point in time is going to justify the wrong, why it's more wrong to have sex with a comatose person than to take their thing. But um, again, it's a little hard to see what exactly is the wrong maker there. So pretty much everyone has the view that there's something really, really wrong and bad going on in, in Kill Bill with a bride. But when I actually try to fill it out, it's actually surprisingly difficult.
2: So, so far we've focused on the wrong maker being consent-based or being rights-based. So it's down to logical. But as the resident utilitarian, I want to push for consequences, right? So I want to say, well, the reason it's wrong to have sex with a 12-year-old is it's going to have negative consequences. Now, I know your obvious response to that is going to be, but sometimes it won't. So you're going to say something like, sometimes the 12-year-old enjoys it, learns something from it, has a good time, and it doesn't have a negative consequence in their life. And there's two ways one can respond to that. So the one is by saying, well, actually it's negative consequences, but the child misreports them. So that's to deny the empirical claim. But the other route which I want to take is to say when the consequences are negative, they're die. And so because there is a significant probability of those consequences happening, you shouldn't engage in the act. Because if that child has a bad time, it could scar them for life. And that is enough of a risk that it would explain the wrongness of the adult-child sex interaction.
1: Great. So let me take the, the, the first one, the, the empirical claim first. Here it's actually quite murky. There's, there's a, a pair of studies by, by Bruce Rind and some others that kind of looked at the long-term consequences of adult-child sex. And what they discovered is something like, and, and, and again, these, these studies are highly controversial. There's enormous debate over how they're put together. But so roughly about 74% of males reported they had kind of a positive or neutral view after. And I think 45% of females, this is well after, reported like a positive or neutral view. And then anecdotally, things are all over the map on this. And same thing with the the, the people who engaged in statutory rape during their teenage years, which probably involves something like hebephilia rather than pedophilia. So it's just not clear that these things do have negative consequences in general, and it's even worse because you might think the negative consequences are in part affected by the negative view society has for these things, right? In the same way that society has very negative views towards interracial relationships, there might be a certain amount of suffering or pain because of disapproval. And in addition, you're right, I am going to say, well, that at most shows that it's wrong in some cases, not in others. And yeah, so that's not going to pr- produce, a, produce a, a blanket ban. In addition, on a utilitarian balance, you have to look at the, the, the positives and the negatives. But let me take the risk case. So you're saying, look, we could look at the expected utility, or perhaps another way to put it is to look at the risk. Uh, a couple of things I want to say here. One is that I don't think risk is itself a wrong maker. I think risk is a risk that you perform a wrong action. That is, probabilities themselves don't make our lives go better or worse. So I, I don't think that probability themselves directly play into the rightness or wrongness of an action. I actually think what they go toward is blameworthiness, right? Are you blameworthy for doing this? And yeah, it might be the case that if the risk is large enough, you're blameworthy for doing so perhaps someone is blameworthy, but it doesn't show that it's wrong. And again, here, the numbers matter, right? If in fact, take the case of statutory rape. So we're talking about teenagers here rather than children. Here, the number of males who report sort of a, a positive relation is extraordinarily high. And even even the notion of women who report are are really high. So yeah, I guess even on a risk analysis, it's not obviously that risky. So for for example, for teenagers, roughly 50% of of teenagers who are 16 or younger in the U.S. have had sex. So uh, yeah, it just doesn't seem that big a risk, at least for teenagers. So I I guess I think, look, the risk is not a wrong maker. It does go towards blameworthiness. Maybe people are blameworthy. That's not obvious to me. And also, even if they are blameworthy, it goes to what they're thinking. Blame to me is an internalist feature. So we have to look inside the person's head. It just might not be the case that these people have blameworthy mental states. Maybe they maybe they should have thought of this, but that doesn't make you blameworthy. I,
2: I like that response because it's bold. Mm-hmm. I like it because it kind of denies probabilistic utilitarianism, right? So yeah, it says, yeah. well, if you're going to be a utilitarian, you've got to evaluate the, right, the rightness or the wrongness of your action on the actual consequences of that action, not on the probabilities of negative consequences or positive consequences consequences resulting. I'm a probabilistic utilitarian uh, for various reasons like this that push me that way. But if I've gotten you to a point where you say, well, the only way I can justify my position is by denying that type of utilitarianism, then we reach an impasse. But I say, well, that's a stalemate. And it's a stalemate I'm willing to live with, because it makes your position a little bit less plausible, right, that you have to push that way. The second point I want to make is even if it is the case that 74% of male uh, teenagers who engage in sex with an adult report a positive experience, even even if you might say from that data that there's a low probability that they'll have a negative experience, and I agree with that, but the question is those other 26%, perhaps some of those had a horrendous experience. So it wasn't just little bad, it could have been very, 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 very bad. And even though there's only a low probability of that very bad thing happening, say 24%, it might be enough to justify saying, well, hold on, that isn't something that I should do.
1: Okay, so an excellent point. I, I'm I'm highly sympathetic. Uh, let me address probabilistic utilitarianism. So I, I am not a fan of probabilistic utilitarianism. And here's my argument. Generally, we say things like pleasure is good or well-being is, is intrinsically good. And the, the sort of consequentialism then says, look, the right is a function of and only of the good. I, I think if you go to probabilistic utilitarianism, you have to sever one of those two claims. I think that's a huge price to pay. It's not as used as it is for um, rule utilitarianism, but it is quite huge. So that's one reason to reject it. A second issue is the framing of the probabilities, right? You have to say, OK, is the probabilities for you know, Alice in the situation? for you know, 13-year-old girls in the situation, for girls ages seven to 16, and there's no way to set the reference class um, by which to make it correct or, or, or incorrect. So second is the issue of the setting the reference class. The third issue is a variant of Derek Barfitt's Egyptology. If we're looking at the reference class you know, with the probabilities, then you know, how well the sex went in ancient Egypt affects whether or not Jones can have sex with a, a 13-year-old girl today strikes me highly implausible that whether or not Joan should have sex with this girl today depends on facts about ancient Egypt. So um, three quick objections probabilistic. It severs the notion between the right and the good. The reference class problems are severe and it introduces Egyptology. But let, let's say I'm wrong about all that. Let's say that. Um, do we think this about other issues? We say, look, before I have my son get bar mitzvah or engage in joint wrestling, I really have to decide, is this really the, the best thing for him as compared to other activities? I'm mean, just in common sense terms. I don't think we, we we approach it like this. So if we're using intuitions rather than being strict consequentialists, I think, look, do, do we really do this calculation? Do we really say I, I, absolutely the best use of his time is preparing for his bar mitzvah rather than, for example, studying extra math classes? So, yeah, I guess I just don't think we approach it in, in those common sense terms. There's no escaping this. If you're a probabilistic utilitarianism and the risk here is huge, I, I don't think that we know that the, the risk is huge in the way in which you're putting. The risk, I think, is with regard to unwilling sex with underage individuals, like out-and-out out rape. And I agree with you, that's horrendous. That's a, that's a terrible thing to do. It's severe wrong. It should be severely punished. But you're saying sort of willing sex that people didn't enjoy, that that has a, a, a risk of severe harm. I don't think we know that empirically i in fact, we don't know that empirically, but again it would it would depend on the actual what what do the studies show and what can we best determine
2: I think that's a good answer, and yeah, I still stick with my probabilistic utilitarianism, but I find it very interesting that if you remove probabilistic utilitarianism, you would find it very hard to defend the view that adult child sex is in principle wrong
1: right and and so since we're if we're in the area of legislation rather than morality. And here's a rule of thumb. If you don't know whether something has expected good or expected bad consequences, the thumb on the scale should go to liberty. So if we don't know whether um, willing sex with 15-year-olds is going to have net good or bad consequences, it's not like we say, oh, well, go ahead and ban it. The idea is that people trying to criminalize something bear the burden. And even having harsh opinions on this, before we condemn people for engaging these on the basis of probabilistic utilitarianism, We should know that it does pose a risk for those and only those willing participants. I don't think we know that.
0: I think also to not let Jason off the hook, utilitarianism by nature is always going to be contingent on the particular facts that you find yourself in, and the probabilities are going to be contingent on that particular place. So you can imagine if you're in a highly neurotic society, where anyone who, let's say, engaged in willing sex below a certain age there's a high likelihood that they're gonna go see their analyst, and the analyst is gonna say, You think you're consented to this, but you are wrong and deluded, and the worst possible thing ever happened to you, and you need to be in therapy for the next 40 years going through this deep trauma, that's the kind of side you live in. Well, high the probability that this was a bad thing to have happened. If you live in like a hippie commune where people are having sex at a young age all the time and everyone says a celebration of our body and there's no neurosis whatsoever and no one in that society has ever felt any kind of trauma about having sex under the age of 18, well then there are no probabilities, right? And so Jason can't in principle rule it out. It's going to very much depend on the facts of the case. I suppose people that are going to have an in principle objection, are going to have to look at things beyond consequences. So they're going to have to say it's wrong in and of itself. And maybe one of those kinds of cases to say, well, you, you have this obligation to yourself to not do that to your body, that it's somehow sacred. And that if you, you know, willingly engage in this, you're a co wrongdoer as the child, and the other person has exploited you because you couldn't have freely given your consent or something like that. And they've used you as a means only. And regardless of the consequences, the thing is wrong in and of itself. Again, you might have to start biting other bullets. So in our discussion with Rajahawani, he thinks that all sex is using someone as a means only. It's being driven by passion. It's by seeing them as this body that you want to take advantage of for pleasure. And maybe it's not so simple when you want to draw these lines.
1: So I think there are three excellent points. So let me, let me address them per points. So one is, yeah, I I think framing issues and societal attitudes are, are both relevant and in place here. I suspect that being gay in parts of the middle East is very different than being gay in Ithaca, New York. So that's going to have, it's bound to have some impact on the the way in which people looked at it and particularly whether at the end of the day, they see it as harmful and perhaps even whether it is harmful based on the disapproval of family, friends, peers, and so on. As far as the notion that sex wrongs yourself, again, I think this is to misidentify the wrongmaker. Even if you had claims against yourself, I'm not sure that you do, it's not clear why you can't waive them. We waive rights in general. We waive rights all the time. You allow people to touch you. You allow your spouse to touch you. You allow your, your, your judo uh, partners to touch you. Why can't you waive rights? We, We do this standardly. If you can waive rights against others, why can't you waive rights against yourself? As far as the notion that sex, not directly relevant here, but that sex always uses someone merely as a means, I guess I don't think that's right. I think that sort of, it's not a correct account of Kant. What, What I think Kant would say is, well, you treat someone as an end when you treat someone as a free and rational being. And you treat someone as a free and rational being when you respect that individual's rights. So again, since you waive the relevant rights, It's hard to see why you haven't respected that person as a free and rational being. And as such, you've treated that person as an end. Now, I know there's a lot of Kantian theories. and You typically see this in the philosophy of sport, where people say, well, you know, um, treating someone as an end is not solely a function of rights. And you say, okay, well, what is the additional determinant? And that that actually gives us some sort of criterion rather than some vague appeal to degradation or exploitation or, or objectification. Again, I don't see it. And even if there were such a claim based on degradation or exploitation or uh, objectification or something along those lines, it's not clear I can't waive it. It's an odd view that you have claims that you don't own. And it's a particularly odd view if you're emphasizing the notion that people are free and rational beings, that they don't own their own claims. So I think, one, in sex, we treat someone as an end all the time, at least you've got the full consent. But two, um, yeah, I, I think it's just a misunderstanding. To say that you treat someone merely as a means. And, and again, Roger's is great. I, I benefit an enormous amount from his work, but on this one, I disagree. So there is, and you've
2: mentioned this, an enormous antipathy towards pedophiles yes. and towards pedophilia. So there's a just an, an incredibly strong gut reaction. Now, on the one hand, we might try to explain that by citing the wrong maker of the action, right? So you've done a very good job of explaining how deontology specifically rights and consent and using people as a means to an end those those issues aren't clear wrong makers in pedophilia and then we discussed utilitarianism and consequences but there's a third route that people could take which is to say well the pedophile is vicious they have a poor character so even if everything goes well so even if the 12 year old has a good time and and doesn't report negatively about the experience. And even if you wanna keep probabilities in the mix and say, well, there's a high probability that'll go well. And even if uh, there's no rights that are set aside, and even if consent isn't an issue here, and there is willingness, there's still a viciousness on the part of the, the pedophile. Viciousness meaning that there is a vice that they're enacting through the act. So how would one respond to that? And as a corollary question, it seems like part of the issue that people have with pedophilia is not just the act, but even the imagination, even the thought of it. And and that points at the viciousness issue, right? So it points at this idea that if someone even just has the thought of it, that is morally abominable because there's something wrong with their character, even if it never eventuates in an act.
1: Superb. Yeah. So I I think this just gets at exactly how a lot of people think of it they think, look, I I just find this disgusting. I don't know why I find it disgusting or what I mean by it being disgusting, but it's just disgusting. And then they say, look, uh, there's something really wrong with you if you're having these fantasies or if you're watching cartoon adult child pornography. Like that is also outrageous. Although why it's outrageous, yeah, you're right. It's probably going to be vice. So a couple of things to say here. One even if it were vicious, being vicious is not itself a wrong maker. I and mean, when we do the right thing for the wrong reason and a wrong thing for the right reason. So it really doesn't affect whether or not the act's right or wrong. I'm not sure viciousness is a major um, component of the of the good and the bad. So even if it was vicious, it's not clear that even is enough to make it bad. It's got to compete against pleasure. And so which one wins out is not, not obvious to me. But let's, let's take on the directly, let's take, consider directly a notion that it's vicious. I just don't think it's vicious. And here's why. So here's what I take vice to be. I take vice to be a property of an attitude. All right. So I'm using Thomas Herker's account here. And so it involves either loving evil or hating the good or involves an appropriately aligned attitude like loving the good or hating evil, but that's so disproportionate in its intensity that it's, that it becomes a vice. Let's take the former case that vice includes loving evil or hating the good. Well, it doesn't really involve hatred when you're watching these things. So it would involve loving evil. Okay. So does it involve loving evil? Well, um, there's two ways we can look at this. It could be that you're vicious if you love something that's actually evil. So it's got to correspond in a certain way with the world or the way I prefer it, which is that you love evil in the sense that you believe it to be evil. So that's an internalist account of vice. Since I think virtue and vice are purely internalist, I think the internalism is the way to go. But let's let look the, the externalist account for having a, a sexual fantasy or, or desiring pre children or young teens is wrong because your desire is directed at something which is evil. Well, that just begs the question, right? We have to know what's, what makes it evil right? You still need to establish that's evil to show that your desire directing toward it is directed towards an evil. So I don't think we've gotten very far. In addition, yeah, so so uh, in addition, I'm highly skeptical of these externalist accounts of vice, right? Because again, they they make it uh, depend on something outside your head. But let's take purely what's inside of your head. So imagine that, that are you desiring something that you believe to be um, evil or bad. I I guess I don't think people have that coarse a desire. I think it's more fine-grained. Were someone, were this to occur, it would be sexy. Not that it's good that it would occur, but were it to, to occur. So for example, on some accounts, over half of women have forced sex fantasies, right? There's at least some reason to believe these are rape fantasies. So some enormous percentage of women, probably over half, have rape fantasies. Do they really think it would be good if they or someone else were raped? Absolutely not. They have fine-grained fantasies. They say, were this to occur, it would be sexy. It would not be all things considered good. It would be atrocious, but there would be a sexiness to it. And this is true. We watch all sorts of violent movies that we think are excellent. I'll just give a few examples. Right? We watch Shane. We're glad to see the, the bad guy cut down. We watch Full Metal Jacket. We like the artistry of that. Right? We watch the brutality of the deer hunter. And we say, well, that's that, that's a fascinating move. I'm glad I watched that, even though I watched all sorts of horrendous violence and cruelty. So I think we have very fine-grained attitudes towards scenarios. One of those fine-grained attitudes is that that scenario is sexy. So I would claim that it's not vicious. And again, you can see it on the two interpretations of what it means to be vicious.
0: So I'd like to pause a bit on this realm of fantasy where people kind of conjure up an image but they never act on it and whether that could be wrong so you can imagine the abstract case where someone imagines raping raping an abstract person and then there's a case where they they imagine raping a very particular person so they imagine raping your mother and your mother has a very strongly held interest in being well regarded she would be horrified to know that someone is imagining raping her but she never finds out so in other words she holds an interest she's unaware of the interest being set aside but it is in fact being set aside through the fantasy process. If she had a pick between worlds where everybody treated her well and regarded her well versus a world where everyone treated her well and regarded her poorly she's going to pick the first world. You know she thinks that in other words the way people think of you matters some way. Unclear how much on the scales but you know you would I think most people have that kind of an interest. So is it wrong then to have these kinds of violent sexual fantasies about Particular individuals, if you think that they would be horrified that you had the fantasy?
1: So, no. And let me me handle it in two different ways. One is, do you have an interest in what another person thinks? I think the answer to that is no. If I have a claim against what someone, what Mark thinks about me, then Mark owes me a duty with regard to what he does with his body or his labor. But if he owes me a duty, if I have a claim against Mark with regard to his body or labor, it seems that in some sense I own his body or labor but I don't. So if it were to be the case that someone would have a, a right not to have the person think about them, it would seem that the per, the thinker would, in some sense, own the person's body or labor. But So that's why I don't think there's that wrongmaker present. But let's leave that aside. Let's assume the issue is, does a person have an interest in this? It's a little hard to see how they have an interest in this. So let's go through kind of the standard Accounts of interest, are I think the best accounts. Does it set back Alice's pleasure? Well, she doesn't know about it, doesn't set back her pleasure. Does it set back one of her objective list goods? Doesn't set back her autonomy, the love, the amount of love in her life, her virtue, her knowledge, things like that. Okay, so it doesn't set, well, I think the primary determinants. I actually think it's only pleasure, but it might maybe it's the two of those. It does set back her desire fulfillment theory, but I think desire fulfillment theory is just is, is clearly false. And you can see this in a couple of ways. It's very hard to see how the mere fulfillment of your desire, independent of you knowing about it, makes your life go better or better or worse. Second, there's, pro- there's paradox cases. What happens if I desire my life go poorly? I don't think desire fulfillment can answer that. And then there's the time of the bad of the badness for me. If I desire something ten years from now and it happens, is it bad for me when the desire occurs? When it happens, and does it backtrack? So I think desire for film theory is a particularly bad theory of self-interest, and because of that, I just don't think it sets back an interest of the person who's fantasized about.
2: So we might want to think about not just a particular person uh, that you haven't have a desire for, we might or a desire to harm. We we might want to think about a class of persons. So one particularly thorny issue, which has been around for decades, but which has suddenly come to prominence is this idea of having preferences for or against certain racial groups. And enormous political, academic, philosophical discussion on this recently, and you've written on this as well, on a preference towards, for example, Asians. And that is seen by some as morally repugnant to fetishize a certain racial group, they'll say. Here, I'm not sure exactly what the reason is that they would say it's morally abominable, I'm guessing it's that they would say it's vicious. And so some of your responses will, will pertain here as well. But how do you grapple with that?
1: So I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I, I think it's quite an important debate. It's only recently gotten a lot of attention, particularly in the context of racial, ethnic, sexual preferences. I should say, put the preference more generally. So take Asian romantic preference. Here are the preferences either for sex, dating, or marriage. So it need not be sexual, and also can be intra or intergroup, and it can be intrinsic or, or, or extrinsic. So, for example, it could be that young Korean men prefer young Korean women. Okay, so that's intergroup. Uh, there, people's intuitions seem to disappear. And you think, okay, so, uh, you know, uh, young you know Jewish men in Israel have a real taste for uh, young Jewish women. Okay, well, pe- people don't seem to get that upset for that, with that. Same thing with regard to intra-group. And then the preferences might be extrinsic, right? It might be that the the, the Korean man thinks, look, I, it's going to keep my sister, my mom, and my grandmother happy if I'm dating a Korean woman, so I prefer a Korean woman to keep everyone off my back. But let's let's have the kind of fetishist account that people find most offensive, right? White men uh, desiring Asian women, okay, East Asian women more particularly. Okay. And I should note that these preferences apparently are all over the place. They're not only those. And apparently they're they're quite I've been told that they're quite strong preferences in the the gay community. And so these things are not linked to sort of white men going after East Asian women. I should also mention that the studies here are not clear, but there's at least one study which suggests that white men don't have this preference. It's actually East Asian women's indifference between white men and, um, and East Asian men that's producing these effects. But again, let's assume that this fetish is there and it's strong. Right? In the Ivy League, it's certainly to be a very uh, common pattern to see, for example, Jewish men with, with, with East Asian women. Again, it's hard to see what the wrongmaker is. For the reasons I mentioned earlier, it's hard to see whose right is infringed. Okay, but th- that's straight. Imagine, but no, but it's it's degrading or it's exploitative. It's oppressive. It's, it, it, it hurts someone's dignity. But it's a little hard to see why that's more true here than in general. Imagine that heterosexual men show a real preference for women with thin, tight bodies, perky breasts, p- pretty faces, things like that. Is, that. is that more dignified or less degrading? Or <laughs> You had to articulate it publicly. None of it sounds particularly good. So given that people have these preferences and the preferences don't themselves seem justified or unjustified, right? Why? What would justify a heterosexual rather than a, a homosexual preference? Or what would justify a preference for a thin type runner, female runner bodies rather than curvy... Uh, Maryland Monroe bodies. It's hard to see what would justify these preferences. So there just doesn't seem to be a wrong maker here, or if it is, it's not distinctive to Asian romantic preference. But let's let's consider consequentialism because Jason's consequentialist, and I'm highly sympath- sympathetic to consequentialism. It's a real notion that it's a really bizarre notion. That this harms East Asian women. Here's an analogy. Imagine in the Ivy League, the women have something. That, I'm gonna I made this up. Hebrew fever right? And they really find Jewish men sexy, right? Particularly Ivy League Jewish men. Now, if you ask Jewish men, if we could get rid of this preference or this desire among Ivy League undergraduate women, would you want this, uh, would you want to get rid of? They'd be like, absolutely not. Are you kidding? I want to ratchet it up and be more intense, right? Because it gives you a competitive advantage. So you think, okay, well then, are East Asian women irrational? They don't like the, the, the strong dating advantage of being fetishized? I very much doubt it, right? If, if you said, okay, now you're going to have the competitiveness of women who are fi- found unattractive for various reasons, they think, like, well, no, no, thank you. I think I'll go back to the attractiveness category. It might, in fact, be sort of harmful to some non-neach-age women, there's their competitors. That might be the person who is harmed on a in general or particularly our worry on a consequential scale. And there we have to, okay, how do we balance out the harms uh, versus the benefits but at least we're being honest that we have to do a cost-benefit analysis right so there's no wrong maker on a consequentialist account no, at least no obvious one and in fact I, I don't think it harms these Asian women i think it probably benefits them and for the same reason it's it's not bad it, it has none of the distinguishing features of an intrinsically bad attitude it's not false when you say i find this attractive. this type of woman attractive That's a true statement of fact. You do. It doesn't involve some sort of lack of dessert satisfaction. So I think you're right. It probably has to break down to vice. So what would be the vice here? Is this a case of um, loving something that's evil or hating something that's good? Well, it doesn't involve hatred. So it's got to be loving something that's evil it's hard to see what's evil about it. And he, even if it were, like if he had some, some objective, it's hard to see what's different than this other than liking thin women with thin runner-like bodies. So the reason I think this matters is not just because you have this real disconnect between everyday people who think there's nothing wrong with this and academics who get bent out of shape, um, You know, find this incredibly offensive, what's, what's explaining this disconnect. But there are two implications of these racial and sexual preferences. One is it shows that discrimination is not wrong. right? If it's okay to discriminate in the case of sex or dating and marriage, it's a little hard to see why it's wrong to discriminate in other areas, such as uh, employment or friendship. Second, this shows you, a um, using kind of a Robert Nozick approach, a justice in transfer way that you get to very unequal wealth or income in a way which doesn't infringe on rights. Marriage is a huge economic benefit for a lot of people. Being attractive is is, is something that people pay a lot of money for, it's something they value quite strongly. So if you were to convert this into economic terms, people might gain quite a benefit from being fetishized. So what this shows is this kind of strong argument for a perfectly just way to get to very unequal results.
2: Maybe the response is gonna be something like, I, as an Asian woman, feel very hurt and offended and that counts. So in other words, it's not that I don't have sexual partners available to me. So it's not that kind of harm. And it's not the harm that I'm going to suffer negative consequences in my life, other than my emotional hurt. Um, Maybe it's something like that.
1: Yeah, so it's, One, there's, you might think that the the world of dating is balancing off emotional hurts, right? If people want you for the wrong reasons, that hurtful, it's hurtful. If they don't want you at all, that's even more hurtful. You want to get that sweet balance. They want you for and only for the right reasons. Well, being a heterosexual male and, and talking to heterosexual males, I can say that males plenty of times, especially even with their wives when they were first dating, did not want them for the purest of reasons. So we're not in the land of like virtuous desires here, nor is it clear to me that emotional hurt is relevant here. You may be emotionally hurt by other people's attitudes, but that seems to be a a statement about your psychology, not about any sort of moral feature. Take women who are discrimination against the obese is quite strong in our society in all sorts of levels. We can track it economically, in terms of dating and marriage, we can track it in terms of economics, career advancement, Things like that and we can track it in terms of attitudes like the halo effect so you can imagine an obese woman being very offended about her social invisibility and i, and I kind of sympathize with her but it's, it's hard to know what to do with that yeah it's, it's kind of sad that she's emotionally hurt that she's socially invisible and that people don't desire her and they don't ask her out and that they don't discuss her in in filthy ways in between like you know wrestling practice it's it, it's hard to see w- what to make of that okay and that happens it's unfortunate so what as far as Asian women saying they're emotionally hurt, I'm just highly skeptical of this claim in that if you said, "Okay, look, imagine God came down and said, "I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what East Asian women." Um, you, you secretly vote on this, and I'll, I'll I'll eliminate any any preference that white men have for you. Uh, and actually, I'm not even sure it's confined to white men, but but we'll eliminate any any preference, right? Any any ordering that you have. Is that what you want? I, I suspect that they say, "Well, I'm hurt, but not that hurt. And and by analogy, if you asked Jewish men in the Ivy League, if God said the same thing, would you like me to get rid of Hebrew fever? They'd say, well, well, I'm not that hurt. Let's 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 keep the competitive advantage going strong. So, I guess two things: one, I'm not sure what to make of the emotional hurt, and two, I, I, I that emotional hurt strikes me as irrational. So it seems like the
0: complaint could be to say that you're treating me. As a token for a type so imagine you're lying in bed with your your spouse and you're sort of whispering i love you to each other and she says to you why do you love me and you say well it's because you're asian she says but is it not because of the way i look after the kids and like i've got all these other wonderful attributes that are unique to me you're like no pretty much any other asian woman could do the thing that i only care about is the fact that so you're from southeast asia and you're an asian and If some other woman popped into bed who met their criteria, that would be great for me and I would love them. All the other underlying stuff I don't care about at all. You might think that she then feels like, well, there's something dishonest in the nature of this relationship. I want to be valued not for this arbitrary attribute of where I was born, but for these other things that matter. I agree that you might have a weighting of preferences. and In other words, if someone has to pick between a life of solitude or a life of being fetishized, maybe they pick being fetishized, but they might still think that they're worse off.
1: Yeah, So um, one, one, this is just not kind of an accurate account of people's psychology. I mean, take people who have been married for a long time, happily married. And you say, OK, when you were when you were a 21 year old and walking around the, the cold and, and, you know, snowy campus of Cornell and you, you met this Jewish woman, was your goal like was it to explore her intellect or was it her, your goal to like take her to bed immediately and, and as thoroughly as you could? And you might think, well, these relationships, they start out sexual. Not all of them, but some of them do. It, it's hard its hard to get around that. And so, yeah, I think it would be really unfortunate if your partner in life thought you as a replaceable cog. But I don't think that's an accurate psychology of what's going on here. By analogy with Hebrew fever, it's not like that would be the only consideration that the Ivy League women would have, but it would be a consideration. And I think that's what's going on there. It's actually even stronger. I think some of the Asian fetishing, my guess is, this is just a guess, I don't have any data for support of this, but that's not actually solely based on sexuality. It's also based on something they're having better values than others, being more academically oriented than others, being more family oriented than others. No, I don't know if any, any, any of these things are true. Lots of our stereotypes are sort of inaccurate or even if they're accurate, There's plenty of exceptions both ways, but it's not even clear to me that these stereotypes of fetishizing is purely sexual. So I I just don't think this track sort of, you know, has any sort of relation to the the real world psychology of people considering sex, dating, and marriage. But there's a more theoretical issue here, which is separate from this, which is to what degree do you love the person as opposed to the properties the person has? That is, would you love your, your wife's doppelganger as much as her? Well, most of us say, well, no, we would not. And you love your wife. You would not love your wife's doppelganger. And that is an intrinsic self-for-self. And you think, okay, well, what would justify your loving A rather than B? It's very hard to fill that out in terms of, of theories of love. Some people would say something like, Well, it's your shared history, but of course you can get hypotheticals which which sort of equalize the shared history. So you'll have as much shared history. With a do- doppelganger as your current wife, so that that will even out. So it's kind of a theoretical issue. You know, do you love the person, or do you love the the collection of properties that the person bears? And if it's the latter, why? What's wrong with duplicate replacement? This is a deep problem in love theory, but it's not a problem with East Asian fetish, you know, fetishizing or preferences for that. So yeah, I, I find this one of these issues that there's just nothing there. There's no there there. There's no wrong maker, there's no bad maker, there's no vice maker. And yet people get really upset over it. And it also strong implications for both discrimination and inequality.
2: I find this discussion fascinating because exactly this contrast between such strong intuitions, such deep seated emotional responses to these issues. But when you probe, it's really not clear what the wrong maker is. And so it seems strange to have such strong emotional responses to such intellectually unclear positions. Perhaps one way of looking at it is not that the strong emotional response is linked to a false belief. Perhaps one way of thinking about it is that the strong emotional response is an evolutionary response. So perhaps certain activities today are okay, but weren't in our evolutionary past. When I say okay, I don't mean morally okay, I don't have the kind of negative consequences that perhaps we thought they would have had in the past. By the way, I, I share I share some of your conclusions, but not other conclusions, but I share most of your premises. So it's it's very interesting to me to play this game in my own head of where are my intuitions coming from. But I like this evolutionary explaining a way of intuitions generally in philosophy as an approach?
1: So I think that's an excellent point. And I actually think what's going on, so we look at this is kind of a study of speed dating where sort of women have in-group preferences, men didn't seem to, but the women seem to have in-group preferences. And you can imagine why that is, right? Sort of an intact marriage, an intact community probably is better off in terms of providing the resources. And we can tell these sort of evolutionary stories that explain these these preferences. One of the problem with these explanations is it, is it doesn't get at, I think, a lot of the outrage that we see today. So I'll just give you a few examples. People are pretty outraged at the notion that uh, people would be attracted to teenage girls, uh, teenage women. In, in evolutionary terms, that, that makes no sense. And that's, in evolutionary terms, that's precisely who you want to be attracted to because they have high degree of fertility, have many more years of fertility. So it only explains that outrage. People are outraged when you're opposed to affirmative action. It's, it's a little hard to see what the, um, why that would be evolutionarily valuable because what you're doing is you're benefiting individuals through affirmative action that are, uh, that are genetically distant from the, the people who are providing the benefits or at least a good deal of the people who are providing the benefits. And even in terms of, of, of the fetishizing of East Asian women, it's hard to see what the evolutionary explanation there is as a woman or as a man for that matter the the greater the degree to which you desire, the more likely that you're going to reproduce, and the more likely that you um, can get a better partner. I mean, the more um, demand there is for your supply, the better the price you're gonna get. So in evolutionary terms, it's hard to see why any of these things would generate the sort of intuitions we have, either the attraction to teenagers, affirmative action, Asian romantic preference, pretty much any of the other things we've discussed.
2: The thought came to me when I was thinking about adult child sex rather than teenagers. Sure. Because there, there isn't an evolutionary advantage to having that sexual contact. There might be an evolutionary disadvantage. So maybe that's where my thought was. But as you start to apply to these other cases, it's not as clear.
1: Well, let me address the evolution in adult child sex. And again, I'm I'm speculating here, but, I, but I, it's not obvious to me there aren't evolutionary advantages. And here's the reasons to think there are evolutionary advantages. One is um, when you test college-age males, surprisingly number, surprising numbers like you know over one fifth show attraction to prepubescent individuals. I assume that's mostly girls, and that's true not only when you ask them; they self-report it, which people have got to be hasn't self-report it, but when you use the penile responses, which are the, the kind of true test. So it's fairly widespread among young men, particularly young men in our society. Second, you see in the hunter-gatherers. Right? You see it in all sorts of cultures that are, that are quite different than our own in places like New Guinea and, and things like that, Melanesia. And third, you see it historically. Right, It was true in, in adult child sex, true in ancient Japan, ancient China, you know, ancient India, Egypt, even Great Britain. And you see in our closest cousins, the bonobos. Right? Bonobos are the closest um, to, to us genetically. So if you see the same preference for adult child sex in young males today, in hunter-gatherer societies today, in history, and our closest genetic cousins, there's excellent reason to believe, not excellent, but there is good reason to believe that there's actually a strong benefit to adult child sex. Now, what is that benefit? I'm not entirely sure. It might be that people are getting acclimated to sexuality or they're getting you know, prepared for a long-term bond, or it might be something else. It might, it might be that you're bonding families together. I don't know exactly what the explanation is, but but I would claim that in evolutionary terms, as best we can determine, it's more likely than not there's a strong evolutionary case for adult child sex and for the attraction that, that brings it about.
0: So I've got a general question, which is, assume that you have consent and of the sufficient level between people, are there any sex acts that you think are wrong?
1: So no, and and here's why, again, the, the idea is that leave aside catastrophic consequential overrides. If having sex with someone causes vast amounts of civil war, okay, that, that overrides the deontological considerations. But the idea is that, so if A acts wrongly, then A wrongs B, right? So if you're wrong, you wrong someone. If you wrong someone, you fail to satisfy a duty you owe that person. If you fail to satisfy a duty you owe that person, you infringe on a claim of that person. A right is just a claim. So if you act wrong, then you've infringed on someone's rights. So if you haven't infringed on someone's rights, there's no wrong act. Again, without, without the consequential override. So no, I think, and if you have valid consent, there's no right infringement.
0: So some people have concerns about certain kinds of sexual behavior because they think it's deviant. So BDSM, scat play, homosexuality, group sex, all these things which where you've got consent and you don't have a rights violation, people nonetheless feel that something immoral has occurred. Are they just mistaken?
1: Yes. So I I do think it's deviant because I understand deviant sex to be statistically abnormal. I mean, it's hard to see. Again, there's no right infringement. So if there's no right infringement, it's hard to see what's wrong about it. Someone might think it's wrong because you're harming yourself or you're harming others. I don't think that harm is a wrongmaker in that we wrong people all the time. You win out in economic competition, the the loser is harmed. You win Alice's hand in marriage and Bob is heartbroken. You've harmed Bob. So I don't think harm is a wrongmaker. But it's not clear to me that these things are even harmful. I I don't see that S&M sex or homosexual sex or group sex or scat play. Again, I, I guess it depends on... Part of the problem is the counterfactual, right? If individuals were not engaging in this, what else would they be doing? Um, would they be engaging in sex with even in more intense orgasms? Or would, they, would they be reading Aristotle? So I guess it depends on how the counterfactual works. But I, I guess I think, look, there's no right infringement. So there's no wrongmaker there. And even though that's harmful, I, I very much doubt that counterfactually they'd be doing something which would significantly benefiting them more if they were not engaging in this. So i um, I'm skeptical about even the harm
0: claim. I think if we took those pleasures away from Jason, it's not like he'd be doing more philosophy. He'd probably just be really (laughs) grumpy and be a much worse philosopher.
2: (laughs) we I can can attest to that. Not all those pleasures, not all pleasures (laughs) indulge in, but uh, when I don't indulge in the pleasures I need to indulge in, I'm very grumpy and I can't do good philosophy. Well,
1: and and, and what, what pleasure itself counts. You know, like people say, well, all right, so you got pleasure out of that, but. You know, what did it do to elevate your no, soul? No, I think it's
2: good in and of itself. So I'm a hedonistic utilitarian. I think that hedons count.
1: I'd say, I, I, I 100% agree with you. Yeah, so that that's my view. In fact, my 100 the other things count because they lead to hedons. But even though that weren't true, it's still a pleasure counts for quite a bit. <laughs>